Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. You can follow me on Twitter at FTCNHost. Thanks for listening. In this episode of From the Crow's Nest, I sit down with friend and long sought after guest, analyst and writer, Dr. Tom Withington, to discuss EMSO in the context of Joint All Domain Command and Control, or JADC2. So without further delay, let's get to the conversation. Tom, welcome to From the Crow's Nest. Ken, it's great to talk to you, and I'm thrilled to bits to be here. I must say, I'm a big fan of the podcast. It regularly accompanies me when I'm out going for a walk or going for a run or whatever it is I'm doing. So I'm thrilled to be here, and it was good to talk to you a couple of weeks back as well for uh, the subject that we're going to be discussing today. I greatly appreciate it. We have talked in the past about having you on the show, and, and, and just recently I took over AOC webinars, and since then you've given a couple webinars, and that just kind of provide us, us that little ener- energy to get you on the schedule here. But we had a great conversation, and, and you, I wanted to have you on the show today to talk about JADC2, Joint All Domain Command and Control, you know, where it's at, where it's going, what does it mean, especially for EW. So I just thought, you know, to, to get us started, it's hard to stay on top of everything. What has been on your mind here the past few weeks regarding JADC2 or anything, anything in the EW defense uh, realm? Well, you're absolutely right. There has been some interesting developments in the fortnight or so since we spoke. I thought it was quite interesting that following the webinar, I noticed that C4ISR publication, they have been doing some interesting coverage of JASC2, primarily looking at where things have been going on the naval side of that program, which is known as a project overmatch. Now, the naval project is quite interesting because it's probably the one that we know least about. The Navy have preferred to keep their cards quite close to their chest on what they're doing. They have cited understandable operational and security concerns regarding China and giving the Chinese too much of an inkling of the trajectory and the path for Project Overmatch. And I can understand that to an extent because um, any large-scale, if you like, strategic or operational competition involving China, let's hope it doesn't, degenerate into war, but certainly the way things are going at the moment in terms of the geopolitical tension, I think that is very strongly characterized by the maritime domain. So it's understandable, I think, the Navy are keeping their cards close to their chest. But what we do seem to be seeing is that things are moving apace. And I think this is quite encouraging because what we've tended to see in the past, not just in the US, but I think throughout NATO, is sometimes quite grand projects are announced and they have very laudable and very impressive goals. But then they seem to, forgive the terrible pun, fall off the radar slightly. We perhaps don't hear so much of them. So it is encouraging that I think the DOD has shown that it's very serious about this, as are the US services in general, and things are moving forward. Still, you know, a couple of weeks ago, 
the president did deliver his uh, defense budget, his total budget to Capitol Hill. Of course, that includes the defense budget, $886.3 billion for national defense. I found it interesting, you know, with the budget, you know, there's that kind of justification, the overall, like, here's why we're spending what we're spending on what. And they kind of point out two things. Number one, they recognize China as a key strategic competitor. And then they recognize and they label Russia as an acute threat to U.S. and its allies. And I think that those two interesting use of words to identify two emerging threats, but also two different ways of seeing how you're going to invest in some new technology, new capabilities for an acute threat versus strategic competitor. What does it mean? So JADC2 looks different, you could say, maybe if you're responding to a strategic competitor, then an acute threat. And so JADC2 is going to kind of shift in how it looks depending on how it's used. So just to kind of get started then with this, JADC2, I, we, we've covered this on the podcast for, you know, several different episodes quite a while ago from DOD perspective, industry perspective, academic perspective. And, you know, we've heard it described as a ubiquitous network or, uh, you know, a patchwork quilt of existing capabilities. And, it depends on how uh, visionary you want to get or how practical. In your research and your analysis of Jazzy, what could you help us just kind of define when we say Jazzy 2, it means a lot of things to a lot of people. What is it in your mind in terms of what DOD is trying to accomplish? It's a very good question, Ken, because for the past few months, I've been trying to distill all of this into a workable definition that we can all use. And I was writing on JADC2 the other day, and I came up with something that I'm hoping is at least a step towards getting to this goal. And how I try and describe it is effectively, it's the, it's the connectivity, or the, let's say it's the networking of every platform, sensor, weapon system, personnel, base, and capability at all levels of war, so tactical, operational, strategic, to improve intra and inter-service interoperability. So in other words, I think what it's striving to do is to achieve the connectivity of everything. And that is a hugely ambitious task. But the key thing behind it is to break down intra-service stovepipes, if you like. This is a key thing because for a long time, what we've seen is that the Navy, Air Force and the Army have effectively done their own thing from a C2 perspective, from a command and control perspective, which has been great in terms of the moving information around the battle space within the Army, within the Marine Corps, whatever it is. But the key challenge here is now getting those services to be able to share information between them. That's one of the key things. And I liken it to... I suppose how in the civilian world, how we deal with computing in the sense that if we go back 10 or so years or perhaps even further, we had our desktop computers, we had our laptop computers and we had our mobile phones. So we're talking pre-smartphones here. And it was a bit of a nightmare moving information between those few things. I remember having to have uh, thumb drives and right, what articles do I need to take with me to work on when I'm traveling on this 11 hour flight? And, you know, physically taking those from the desktop and putting them on the laptop. And now we do this seamlessly. We use things like Dropbox or whatever it is, and, and everything's synced together. Our smartphones are synced with our laptops and our computers, etc. So I think, in a sense, that's how the DoD visualizes the command and control architecture for the US services. 
Now, the question is, why are they doing this? Well, the, the key thing I think behind it is to really improve the speed and quality of decision making of the services, again, at all points of war. So it's not, it's not just about making the decision quicker, which is vitally important. If we go back to our OODA loop, you know, John Boyd, whoever gets around the OODA loop quickest tends to prevail. But the key thing is having a better quality of decision making. And as we all know in our everyday lives, we always take the best decisions when we have the best information, whether it's buying car insurance, going to the grocery store, whatever it is. And again, I think that's mirrored in how the DOD and the forces see things progressing as we look towards the future. But that has been something that, uh, you know, I, I think you could say that, you know, the services have not done as well. Maybe they're doing better now than they have in the past, but they've not done well because, you know, the services job is to man, train, and equip, and it's the joint forces, at least in the U.S. side. It's, the, it's their responsibility to bring the fight, you know, to actually fight the war. And then you throw in our allies and partners, and we'll get to that, you know, later because JATC2 affects them as well. How do you get the inter-service collaboration earlier on in that process so that when you're starting a program in Air, you know, Air Force has, you know, ABMS, Project Overmatch in the Navy, Project Convergence in the Army, how do you get that inter-service connectivity earlier in the process? It seems to be something that the services are still trying to figure out. They're probably making good progress, but once you start to open up the doors to more information and more reliable information, uh, you know, you bring in collaborative systems and the speed at which you need to kind of sift through all that and pass that on to the warfighter, the shooter. You know, how do you how do you get that earlier in the process in the services when their job is to man train the Army, Navy, Air Force, so forth? I think the key thing is to have the interconnectivity baked in from the start. I think with any program, with any capability that you're bringing on stream, the key thing is to have this ability for, for whatever it is, whether it's an individual soldier, whether it's an armored vehicle, whether it's a ship, you name it. But for it to have that ability to link out and link in is absolutely vital. And I think the way to do this is really to look at what we've done in other areas. So things like cybersecurity, electromagnetic protection, the whole thing with open standards architecture with things like SOSA and MOSA, for instance, these are now requirements before the first blueprint is even drawn before the first AutoCAD drawing is even made. These requirements are already there. This is a prerequisite before you do anything else. And I think really that's where you need to be in the procurement cycle and in the R&D cycle for any capability you're bringing on stream. The challenge, however, is that we're not starting from a blank sheet. So as JADC2 comes in, and it's important, I think, also to emphasize that JADC2 is not really a program per se. It's an aspiration. It's a set of it's a set of goals, effectively, that these disparate efforts like Overmatch that we talked about will meet. But I think the key thing is right at the start of that process is, is having that in mind. But the problem is that, as I said, we've we're not starting from a plain sheet of paper. We're going to have legacy capabilities that remain in service as we bring the new capabilities, which will have JADC2 style connectivity baked in from the start as they come on stream. And that, I think, is where the friction could arise is how do you effectively, how do you take a platform like the B-52 and ensure it is JADC2 compatible? Now, sure, it can be done, but, but how do you do it? And that's only one platform. That's one capability. You could replicate that, obviously, across the board of the DOD. So that, that's, that's going to be a challenge, I think. 
I'm in total agreement with you, Tom, that, you know, we have to get this, you know, kind of baked into the process. And a lot of this has to do with how we think about the bigger problem. And obviously, the Association of Old Crows, you know, we're here talking about EMS superiority. We had a panel discussion on innovation a couple of years ago that I spoke at. And and I made the point that, and and I still think it's relevant today, is that, you know, you can talk all you want about JADC2. There's a lot of really good stuff that we're trying to do. And, And I think important stuff and things we have to do. But you have to solve the first problem, and that's to have EMS superiority up front because it, it, it's, it's the backbone of everything you want. You can't have connectivity. You can't have assured connectivity. You might have some connectivity, but what happens when that adversary wants to take that away? Or do you have the ability to adapt, to, 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 to change and kind of flow into a different mode of connectivity so that you can get move around that, that some of your adversary tactics? With EMS superiority, what is your view in terms of how DOD is positioning itself to really accomplish and ensure this upfront? Shouldn't every conversation of JADC2 start with EMS superiority? It absolutely should do, because I, I'm in complete agreement, Ken. I, electromagnetic superiority and supremacy are absolutely vital for JADC2 working. One of the things, it sounds perhaps a bit of a flippant example, but you and I are both very familiar of these very elaborate graphics that we get from industry, we get from DOD of a tank, a a, a frigate, an aircraft, a satellite, and there's these lightning flashes linking them between each other and showing you how information is all going to move around. And I'm always looking at them and going, where are the red flashes? Where are the red flashes coming in to break those links? Because that's the reality of the battlefield that the US and her allies are going to face tomorrow. I'm encouraged by the fact that one of the work strands within the cross-functional team at DOD, one of the lines of effort, is very much focused on um, ensuring access to the spectrum and ensuring information security and and safeguarding that, realising that that is an asset that has to be protected at all costs. So I think to be fair to the Pentagon, I, I think they're in the headspace. I think they get it, which is really important, obviously. But I think the crucial thing beyond that is we, we're also going to have to look slightly differently at how we do things. We're very lucky at the moment because we've got some very interesting avant-garde technologies that are coming on stream. The minute you were mentioning about the fact that the spectrum is going to be congested and contested made me think of things like cognitive radio and cognitive radar. We're going to need those AI-based systems that can work out what is happening in the spectrum and go, right, I need to change my behavior to accommodate this. And not only do I need to do that, I need to make sure my human operator knows that I've just done it. And I need them to understand why I have taken those decisions so that they are fully cognizant of what is happening. So in a sense, where we're going with JADC2, we can only get there if we really, really emphasize the spectrum superiority, the spectrum supremacy. But to do that, We've got to be prepared to embrace the new avant-garde technologies which can help us do that. I mean, technology is not the only solution. We also all, I think this comes back to something we're always saying at the Old Crows, and it's so important. Actually, everybody has to be spectrum-minded. Yeah, it's just absolutely essential. We can have as much connectivity as we want. We can have huge amounts of data flying around the battle space. But at the end of the day, if you've got a group of soldiers there who've got their smartphones on and are on social media, you're potentially in a world of hurt. So, so we've also got to think 
you, you've got to see all of this holistically if it's going to work. And you and I get that, the Crows get that. We've all got to go out there and get that message, make sure the people who perhaps don't hear it so much are hearing it, but crucially that they understand it. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for their continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. A BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next-generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing through high-level sense-making up to tactical and operational-level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products to benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems Electronic Systems product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens it had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work and classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. One of your slides in your presentation, you had a quote from Tim Ryan, who's a senior fellow at Space Power Studies at Mitchell Institute. And it says, you know, success in war will go to the side that possesses superior battle space knowledge, makes better decisions, directs forces more effectively, and closes kill chains faster. All absolutely true. How much of this is, when we talk JADC2, we often talk about how it's going to work in battle. 
But there's this other element of how do you project it's going to work to an adversary? You know, they have to understand, they have to, our adversaries have to know and fear we can do these things once the fighting starts. Because if you're looking over at a situation in, in, in Ukraine, for example, where there is armed conflict going on and, and devastation, obviously you're looking at how do you conduct a JADC2 type of mission with the fighting happening. Over in a China, more strategic competition scenario, you know, China's goal is to unify their dynasty. And, and, and on a global stage, they want to look like they're doing that nonviolently. You know, and so a lot of their movement toward Taiwan or controlling the South China Sea, this is going to be done without fighting. This is going to be done without, you know, to the left of launch. So it's going to be very critical for U.S. to project that we have a JADC2 capability that is going to respond in a certain way if you try to do something aggressive. And that looks a lot different than maybe what we see in, in Ukraine. Could you talk a little bit about how you project this notion of JADC2 to an adversary? like China, where you might not actually be able to test how it works because the idea is you want to avoid the fighting to begin with. Another very good question, Ken. Yes, I, it's interesting, isn't it, with Jazz C2, the deterrent effect. Is this the new equivalent of moving the Sixth Fleet into a particular part of the world as a bit of a warning to whatever the bad guys are up to of, hang on, you need to cool off a little bit, otherwise things get a bit hairy. I mean, perhaps there's a potential to demonstratively use elements of JADC2 in peacetime. I mean, when you were um, talking just now, it got me thinking about something like a DPRK missile launch, for instance, if you've got a, uh, a ballistic missile launch going on. Uh, Kim Jong-un often likes flexing his muscles and uh, launching a few missiles here and there to show what he's capable of. What is the potential for the DOD in such a situation to say, well, look, okay, we didn't need to intercept this missile, but we knew the second it had been launched, we knew what was going to happen. We were able to share that targeting information in seconds to our Aegis ships that were in the Pacific. They were primed to intercept this missile if necessary. We shared this information with our allies. The president was kept constantly apprised of what was happening. We shared that data with the ground-based mid-course defense system that's up in the, the northwest of the United States. So demonstrating that you can do this rapid movement of, of data and you can filter the data so everybody gets what they need in peacetime and say, we have the means to do this. The Chinese balloons would have been an interesting situation to have used that with recently. I think in peacetime you can do a lot because, and also you have this capability that you can assist peacetime situations with. I think it was the, the Air Force's, the Air Battle Management System, the ABMS, which is the big work strand of JADC2, the Air Force is pursuing. Elements of that were used in terms of coping with the COVID-19 pandemic, I think in 2021, 2022, I forget the exact date. But that again was a clear demonstration of this is what this technology is and this is what it can do. So I think wherever you can, the important thing is for DOD to get the message out there. We know what you're up to and we can share data very effectively on this. So just so you know, because as you said, this has a very powerful deterrent effect potentially because you know what you want to do against an adversary is is communicate to them that the cost of doing anything aggressive is going to be greater than you're going to be able to afford whether it's financially life or whatever and i think that jesse do has a tremendous capability to almost overwhelm an adversary if done properly 
in terms of giving that sense that U.S. and its allies, we're everywhere, we know everything, we are able to respond. And yeah, there might be some areas where our advantage slips, but overall we can adapt and, and, and stay on the offensive. I think that's a very important message that, you know, I hope that JADC2, as it continues to evolve, is we're able to project that in a deterrence way to a strategic adversary like China. I think it reminds me of something that um, the singer David Bowie said years ago about the internet. So the internet was it was in its infancy, and he was doing an interview on the, on the BBC, and Bowie was always quite a visionary, you know, could always spot trends and see the way things were going in music and art and uh, other areas. And he was asked about the internet, and he was a very early adopter of the internet, and he was asked, you know, what, what is the effect of the internet going to be? And he replied that, I, 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 impossible to say. I think what we've seen of it so far, and this is your early 90s, I think we've barely scratched the surface. I think human brains can't even begin to comprehend the impact this is going to have on our life. And I think in a military sense, JADC2 is quite similar. You and I can quite clearly see the applications for this technology and, and the impact it can make strategically all the way down to the soldier in the foxhole. But I think one of the things we'll see when, as the technology is rolled out and as it gets into the hand of warfighters is we'll see it has applications that we simply couldn't imagine, that we couldn't dream of. And that's going to be very interesting. It's going to throw up some challenges too. It may cause us to start rethinking parts of our doctrines. It may cause us to rethink how we do command. It is going to be challenging, but it is going to offer a lot of potential capabilities we simply have not envisaged, which is one of the things I think that makes it quite exciting. And some of those advances in technology and capabilities, you know, that, that's going to come when also the fighting starts and we realize we have a, a weakness or we have an area that you know, we're being attacked and we need to respond. And this is something that uh, the electromagnetic warfare community has always been good at, is, is that quick turnaround solution using electromagnetic spectrum operations to protect the force and to kind of execute a mission. So properly planning for that, I, I think there's, there's a lot of goodness there that hopefully we can see grow. Earlier in, the, in our conversation, you mentioned obviously the CFT and their lines of effort. And I just wanted to spend a little bit more time kind of talking about some of these aspects because... Going through the lines of effort, you hit on all the major topics of speed, uh, quality of information, as you mentioned, uh, AI, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning applications, and so forth. There are five lines of, of effort, as I understand it. And I would imagine that, I, that they are ranked somewhat in priority, um, although sometimes they, they don't do that just you know, to kind of make sure that everything is taken as the highest priority together. But the, the first one is, the data enterprise. I want to just touch on that because to go back, we talk a lot about spectrum congestion and we need to have the sensors in place to collect the data and to sift through the data and to be able to transmit information. So could, we, could you talk a little bit about how the data standardization efforts are underway to you know improve the visibility and accessibility and so forth of the data that's out there in a ever congested spectrum environment. From my understanding of how this effort is progressing is that essentially it's all focused on creating, as you said, those standards. So with the whole JADC2 philosophy, you're going to be getting potentially a deluge of data. And that's going to be deluge of data from many different sources. It's going to be encoded in many different ways. It's going to be using many different languages. 
data sizes will be different, on and on it goes. So what you effectively need, as I understand it, is you need some way to take that data or let's say, for instance, you've got a feed that's coming from a ground surveillance radar. So you've got a group of soldiers who are deployed and they've put two ground surveillance radars at tactically important points near their position to see what's going on and to see what the enemy is doing. Those radars are obviously collecting imagery and data the whole time. But what they're probably doing as we look towards the future is they have an edge computing capability that is realizing, okay, we don't need to worry about the antelopes. We've got AI algorithms embedded in our computing that ensures that we ignore those, that we ignore things that we don't need to see, and we only focus on the things that we do. So when the radar recognizes through its algorithms that hang on, this looks like a convoy of trucks approaching us. That information is then sent onto the combat cloud through radio communications or through whatever it is and then shared with whoever needs that information. What you need at that point is the moment that data is realized to be important, the trucks in this case, you need a way of standardizing that data so it can go up into the cloud and then whoever uses it can access it and do whatever they need to do it with. And this is a huge challenge. So one of the challenges that we've talked about a lot is if you're collecting data and that data, depending on what, how that data looks, it could be intelligence or have an operational element to it. It could look the same, but if you're in operations, you're going to say, hey, that's something that that's information I need to attack. If you're Intel, that's going to be information that you want to analyze and maybe do something else with that you don't want to necessarily send to the operational folks. And so how do you develop a standard that says, okay, we're collecting this, this needs to go through intelligence, this needs to go to operational, or how do they share across these stovepipes of, of the two and the three and other you know, stovepiped elements of a fighting force? I think one of the things we're lucky with in, in NATO at the moment is, in a sense, we've got form because... We've done a very crude version of this with, with tactical data links, with things like M-series and J-series messages that um, our listeners will be familiar with, things like Link 11 and Link 16. So you've got a set several criteria into which the information goes and then is shared with whoever needs it. But one of the things, of course, that JADC2 embraces is AI. And there's a huge premium placed on AI, particularly at the cloud computing level to effectively act as the clearinghouse for the data, to do that process that you just talked about, to be able to an extent recognize when this, is this information or is this intelligence, for instance? There's a big difference between those two things. Your information is that we know that the bus from wherever arrives at the bus station at five o'clock every weekday. The intelligence is we know that on Thursday, there's a high value individual on that bus. So how do you stream those two things? So I think really that's where the that's where the AI and the machine learning element comes in. And that's really a big part of the heavy lifting of, of JADC2 is the real danger with this, if we don't get this right, is exactly what you've just said. We could have a huge amount of information and it's not collated properly. It's not shared properly. Nobody really knows what it's doing on the cloud. Why was it put there in the first place? You know, what am I looking at? Why is it here? And it can really freeze your decision-making process. And that's not anything you can afford in, in a fight, obviously. Completely. The DOD has been emphatic that the human remains on the loop at all times. But for the human to remain on the loop and for that information to be relevant, the person not only needs 
to see the data that they need to action. But I think the crucial thing is they need to understand why they've got that data. So they need to understand why did the AI take this decision? And that comes towards the trust question as well. So it's one thing adopting all of this technology, but I think one of the biggest battles is you've got to get the warfighter to trust it and realize, okay, I can use this. This isn't going to let me down. And most importantly, it's not going to let my mates down who I'm relying on. And that's part of the battle because what we're doing is huge. And if we don't get it right, the risk is it just gets discarded. Just we, we can't use this, so we bypass it. And it's interesting because we talk AI, we always talk about, not we, but just generally humanity. We, we talk about like all the promises, how fast the information can be recognized and deciphered and sent around. When you're in combat, that decision point is critical because you have to, I mean, you're talking lives on the line, both military and civilian, and you can't afford to make a bad decision. You know, when we talk AI and, and, and how it's shaping business, there's always that element of risk of, well, I can assume a certain amount of risk in the AI protocols based on some of the biases and things of, that are entered into that, into that program. Military, we always talk about that zero risk, you know, unable to take certain risks. So this is the line of effort too, obviously establishing a human enterprise, keeping the human in the loop on the AI and ML. How are we talking about risk in, in this equation? I know it's a huge, huge component, but tell us a little bit about what you're hearing in terms of how we are negotiating these risk concepts. Well, I think part and parcel of managing the risk and, and understanding how it's going to affect us and also understanding how we're going to use this technology comes from all of the, the training and exercises that all of the US services have been doing so far as they've been gradually inducting various elements of what the JADS C2 philosophy is going to be. So if you take the army as an example, the army does the project convergence, which is an annual exercise where it puts a lot of its networking technology through its paces. And part of that, for instance, is it, it's been doing experiments and exercises with the integrated tactical network. And th this is a, a connectivity effort that's going on to enable the connection of things like tactical tablets, that kind of thing, to move information that is perhaps not necessarily secret, but is sensitive or, or non-classified. So I think a, a hugely important part of this is in terms of this management of risk and understanding the risk is getting the technology in the hands of the warfighter and getting them to be as aggressive with it as possible, if you like. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan of the red flag philosophy that the, the US Air Force have always had, which is do an, do an exercise, make it horrifically unpleasant and difficult, get everyone to train in it, because then when you get to the war, hopefully, God willing, it's not as intense. Well, it will be intense, but it, 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 is, it is something below the threshold of red flag, which becomes easier for you to navigate. So I think that's a key part of it. And, and whenever, I mean, it, almost whenever you've got a new capability that is coming to the fore, that is going to con con contribute to the JADC2 overall philosophy, you absolutely have got to do that. Of um, crucially, how can this go horribly wrong? And if it does go horribly wrong, what do we do? We use the we use the cliche train as you fight all the time, but it's but the reason we use it all the time. It's like the loop. It's because it's so relevant. So the the risk management, I think, comes from using it, trying to break it, and if we do break it, seeing how we can repair it or seeing how we can manage without it. And that goes across all levels of war. I think. 
I think you want to try to minimize the assumptions that you make in these training exercises too. You know, particularly we've seen this with uh, EW in the past because we have a hard time training in a realistic environment and for electronic warfare, you know, a lot of times we'll run in and we'll do exercises and we'll assume certain things are going to be there. We'll assume certain actions can be taken that will have a certain level of superiority or advantage in the spectrum. And you want in your training exercises to to minimize those assumptions because you can't make those assumptions and you can't train your systems and your soldiers based on assumptions either. So I think trying to get focusing on training, which is extremely important. Staying with the training piece a little bit, you know, we've seen this over in Ukraine with, with Russia. You know, they, they have some amazing technology and capability Russia does. What we found was that their training was not up to par in terms of once the fighting started. And one of the, I think, the benchmarks of U.S. and, and ally training is that we really do try to decentralize training, a decentralized decision-making as much as possible, get it down to the hands of the warfighter, the soldier, the shooter, and democratize it, so to speak. Could you share a little bit about your thoughts on how the leadership between high-level military leaders down to the shooter level, at the lowest level, the, the one that's right in the fight, how JADC2 kind of changes the way we think of leadership and, and communication down the ranks for our military? Sure. You probably remember a few years back, there was an interesting concept that was going around in military academic circles called the strategic corporal. And the strategic corporal idea was that if you have a situation, let's say like Afghan, uh, like the Afghanistan theater or Somalia or, or wherever it is, you're fighting in an urban environment. And suddenly that corporal with his or her section of troops assumes a strategic significance because let's suppose they're in a war-torn state, they're in a three-block war, you know, the area where they are embedded, where they are patrolling. You've got two factions that hate each other. You've got civilians. You've got some civilians who sometimes are with the, one of the factions and sometimes not. Perhaps you've got organized crime elements. You've got all these different things going on. It's a very dynamic environment. On, on top of it, you've got a CNN crew or BBC crew or whoever it is, and they're watching every move you make. And if something goes wrong, it's going to be on the evening news and it's going to lead. So the strategic corporal is having to manage a huge amount of decisions and having to manage a huge amount of in inputs. I think one of the things that the impact that JADC2 has at that kind of level of war is that that corporal hopefully gets access to much better information than they have at the moment and that improves their decision making so using our example of the war-torn city that you know these two factions and civilians some of whom are with the rebels sometimes they're not it ebbs and flows the organized crime elements what you hope is that you get that corporal on their end user devices suddenly getting information that okay we know for a fact and we've absolutely determined that these three houses here and the people in them have absolutely nothing to do with the insurgency. They're just trying to go about their daily lives, but their next door neighbor, they've got a bomb factory underneath. We need to go and deal with that. But you really, really need to make sure that the neighbors are involved in this as little as possible. So you, again, it's going back to this. It's not only making quicker decisions, it's making better decisions because the information you've got to go on is better quality. I think in many ways, um, I'm glad you brought the example of Ukraine up and, and, and particularly Russian doctrine as well. This idea, we often hear in Russian doctrine, there's this emphasis that 
subordinates are not encouraged to take their own decisions and to think on the spot in a way that NATO troops very, very much are. And, and what I'm hoping is that this empowers that democratization of decision-making that we enjoy NATO militaries even further, because I genuinely believe that is a war-winning capability that we share in NATO. I think one of the things Ukraine has taught us, and this comes back to the sort of overall JADC2 goal, is that I don't want to dismiss the Russians because I think they're still a very capable fighting force. But I think one of the things we've seen is that there is a technological gap and there's a doctrinal gap between the Russians and NATO. And I think our job now is to increase that even further, make sure that gap is as wide as we can possibly get it. And JADC2, I think, feeds into that. I want to stay with the NATO theme for a bit. You know, we've talked a lot so far about JADC2, kind of more or less from a U.S. perspective, jumping to the fifth line of effort and not to diminish the others that we won't get to cover. But the, the fifth line of effort is really mission partner information sharing. We, you know, working with our allies, working, you know, both NATO and other regional allies uh, and partners that we have. Can you share how JADC2, the concept of JADC2, as we talk about it in the U.S., how it's applied or seen from a NATO perspective in terms of working together and how does that influence decision-making in terms of funding and and priorities in uh, NATO? Sure. I've been very encouraged with what I've been hearing in NATO and what I've seen because one of the great attributes I think that the U.S. military has is that you know, U.S. military thinking is a bit like rock and roll in the sense that when the U.S. came up with rock and roll, you know, everybody in Europe wanted to buy into it because it was great and it was good to listen to. And I think every time there is an important military innovation in the U.S., whether that's network-centric warfare, whether that was airland battle, and really JADC2 is, is the inheritor of that. You know, this is not a new thing. This, this conversation has been going on, these efforts have been going on really since the end of the Vietnam War and the emerge the airland battle concept and that interest in jointery that came out as a result of that. And what you're seeing in NATO is that, for instance, the British, the French are very much into this and they're working hard on their own multi-domain operations efforts as we speak. So they're doing that within their own forces in order to take advantage of this improvement in the speed and quality of decision-making, but also to be able to plug into what the US is doing and vice versa. I think we're potentially going to get a situation in the future where it's a bit like what you see with League 16 in the air domain, that when you have a big air operation now and the US involved, what tends to happen is that NATO will say, look, if you don't have Link 16, you can't really play. You know, you, if, you, if you want to play, you've got to come with that capability. And I can see the sort of the JADC2 connectivity being like that with okay, you know, X, Y, and Z NATO nations, you're going to be part of this framework force with the US, but you absolutely have to be able to link your data in with what we're doing. And equally, we need to be able to link back with you. So the way to do that is to start these efforts now and get working on that. And that's what we're seeing in the UK. It's what we're seeing in France. Germany, I think, has interest. And of course, it'd be interesting to see what the Finns and the Swedes do as they come into NATO. We're uh, nearing the end of our time. You know, it's, it's funny. When we have you on the webinar, we say, hey, hey, Tom, you know, you have an hour to just talk nonstop. And then we uh, invite you on the podcast. It's like, hey, you've got 30 minutes to have a conversation. And the assumption is that we're going to cover as much information in the podcast as we do in the webinar. And that's just not true. There's going to be a lot that we don't simply get to. But just to kind of wrap things up a little bit, you know, but what are some of the thoughts of, of the things that you really kind of want to drive home to the listener that we might not have been able to cover in the course of our normal conversation? 
I think the first one is that JADC2 is non-negotiable, really, from my perspective. We can't embark on this effort and NATO can't embark on its other MDO, multi-domain operations efforts, and sort of look three or four years down the road and go, ha, ah, you know what, better scale this back, better probably curtail a lot of it. It's getting expensive. It's taking ages to procure. You know, we need to we need to maybe think again about this. This isn't, you know, like an attack helicopter program that spun out of controlling costs or whatever it might be. If we don't get this capability, we will be at a major disadvantage to our near-peer competitors because I can promise you they're thinking about it. China certainly is thinking about it. So that's the first point. The second point links into this, which is all of these efforts have still to run the gauntlet of politics, whether that be in the US with the political situation in Congress and obviously Whichever side of the aisle people are on, they're thinking about money. They're thinking about how much money is available, and there is only ever so much money that is available. And that's mirrored, I think, elsewhere in NATO. So there's always going to be a political temptation to cut back on this. And this comes back really to my third point, which echoes a, an editorial that, that John Knowles, an excellent editorial John Knowles wrote in Jed the other week, where he said that he talked about advocacy. And he said, you know, it's incumbent on all of us to go out there and talk about the electromagnetic spectrum and, and to do advocacy work. And this is not the same thing as lobbying. This is about educating people. And JADC2 comes into that. We've all got to be JADC2 minded, or let's let's say we've all got to be multi-domain operations minded, because that encompasses what NATO is doing as well. But the crucial thing is we've got to explain it to people because one of the biggest obstacles we face is if policymakers don't understand something, I can promise you they'll be tempted to wield the axe and to wave the red pen. So we all need to get out there. We need to get ourselves educated on this and we need to go and bang the drum. And we need to keep the conversation going. I think that's the other thing. So that would be my, my closing thoughts, really. Those are great points. And I obviously completely agree with, with the advocacy piece, you know, and the, the need to educate members of Congress, leadership in DOD. Um, you know, we oftentimes make the assumption that the, the leaders know what we know. And that's not usually the case. And so we ought to take every opportunity we can to, to just to reinforce that. One of the things that is, is going to be coming up here in the near future is we're going to be doing a, AOC is going to be doing a panel discussion with the Hudson Institute here in D.C. with the Congressional Electromagnetic Warfare Working Group, which is a group of members of Congress who are dedicated to this issue of advocacy for EW in Congress. And, you know, we're going to be talking a lot about these topics and it's a great opportunity to speak to Congress to help staff and other leaders in in the sector figure out what is the right path to take on policy. So all these come together. I really appreciate those comments. Tom, as always, it's great to talk to you. And I wish we had more time. You know, hopefully you'll be a frequent contributor here to From the Crow's Nest. Love to have you back on. Love your articles and all the presentations that you do for ASC. So thank you so much for taking time to join me. Ken, it's been a real pleasure. Thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today. Let's keep the conversation going and we'll talk again soon. Thanks again. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Tom Withington, for joining me. Also, don't forget to review, share, and subscribe to this podcast. We always enjoy hearing from our listeners, so please take some time to let us know how we're doing. That's it for today. Again, you can follow me on Twitter at FTCN Host. Thanks for listening.
Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.